Isn't it good to praise the Lord in song? Now we're going to praise Him through the reading of His Word. If you would take your Bibles and open them to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 9, uh, page 10 in your pew Bible. And if you need a Bible, feel free to take the Bible there in front with you. We want you to be people of the book. Genesis 12, 1 through 9 in the life of Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that we can hold in our hands your very inspired word. And that we can learn this morning of the life of faith of Abram. And how, on the basis of your promises, he began a journey of faith. And like him, we are on a journey, a spiritual journey. Maybe we don't yet know you. and Maybe we are in a state of unbelief like Abram began his journey. Or maybe we have encountered you through your son and through your word. And we are believers like Abram is. Lord, wherever we're at this morning, may we see you in a clearer, greater focus as the one living true God. And may we see where we need to follow harder, more faithfully in this journey of faith. May we realize, Lord, that you enable us to do this. Bless Pastor Bruce as he preaches your word. May we be hearers and doers of that which we hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, I want to encourage you to keep your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 12 there. 
We will spend our time this morning as we continue in our series through the life of Abraham. We'll spend our time there in chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. How many of you enjoy camping? Raise your hand. All right. If so, you are part of the 57 million households in North America who camped at least one time in 2021. According to the most recent camping industry statistics, 7 in 10 households identify themselves as at least an occasional camper, or my favorite word, glampers, and 58% of households that went camping in 2021 had children and took them with them. On average, campers spent 7.4 nights camping in 2021 and spent a staggering $167 billion on camping gear, accessories, and trip-related expenses. 64% of campers prefer to camp in tents versus an RV or a cabin. Baby boomers are the most likely generation to camp in an RV or cabin or what they call a glamping accommodation. Almost one-third of campers stayed within 50 miles of home on their camping trips, and they spent 35% of their time camping in state or national park campgrounds. 64% of campers go camping with their spouse, 28% go camping with their friends, and 33% always go camping with their pet. 37% of campers participate in Activities like hiking or backpacking, while 36% participate in fishing. And 50% of campers sometimes or always work during their camping trips. Now, like some of you, I too, I own a tent. I've actually gotten it out occasionally. And have taken uh, my family camping. We have gone camping a few times, but I readily... Heartily confess, camping is not my favorite activity. While camping accounted for 40% of all leisure trips taken in 2021, and 63% of campers used camping as a way to help improve their mental health, for, from my perspective, camping is anything but, quote, leisure. The idea of packing everything up that's needed to survive a weekend setting it all up, and then taking it all down two days later. It's not work, but leisure. I mean, not leisure, but work. In fact, for the sake of my own mental health, give me a condo on the beach with all the amenities instead of a tent in the woods. So 57 million households, staggering number, went camping in 2021. And I'm guessing... I don't know this, I don't have the stats on this, but I'm guessing that the majority of those households also went back home at the end of their camping trip. But what if you never went back home? What if camping in different places actually marked the rest of your life? As we continue this morning in our study of Abraham, what we're going to see is that God called Abraham to forsake his home for a tent so that he might be a blessing 
and all the world could be blessed through him. And so here's what we see in this passage of Scripture before us this morning. Abraham's life, in fact, for the rest of his life, from this point forward, his life is now characterized by two different things. Pitching his tent and building his altar. When Abraham left Ur of the Chaldeans and entered the land of Canaan, he did two things. He pitched his tent and then he built an altar. And these two things actually help us to understand the context in which a life of faith is lived. These two things characterized Abraham's life until the very end of his life. He was always pitching his tent and building his altars. Abraham's tent is a symbol of his pilgrimage in this world, and his altar is a sign of his dependence on the Lord. Abraham's tent was his temporary dwelling place. It it signified his attachment to material things, did not consume him. It was a symbol of his recognition that he was now a pilgrim in this world, following the Lord's call. His altar was also a symbol or a visible sign of his dependence on God expressed in his worship to the Lord on whom he relied. And so here's the question. What does pitching a tent and building an altar like Abraham did, what does it mean for us in our context here in the 21st century for a life of faith? As we follow the Lord, What do these two symbols mean for us? Pitching tents, building altars. That's what we're going to unpack this morning. And what I want you to see, first of all here, number one, is that the life of faith is lived as a sojourner in the world. It's lived as a sojourner. Listen, when God calls us to follow him, we respond to that call and we embark on a journey by faith. Now, for Abraham, this was a literal, physical journey. He journeyed about 600 miles northwest along the Euphrates River from Ur to Haran, and then another 400 miles south along the ancient trade routes from Haran to Canaan. Once Abraham arrived in Canaan, he then lived as a sojourner in the land. We see this described for us beginning in verse 6, when it says, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem. And then you drop down to verse 8, and it says, From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel. And what did he do? He pitched his tent. Verse 9 says, And Abraham journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. And so it's a literal, physical journey for Abraham. But it's also a metaphor for you and I here this morning. Listen, Abraham's journey, his pilgrimage, it is a picture of the sojourner's life. Now, while the details of of this call is very unique to Abraham, God still calls his people to live as sojourners in this world, following in the footsteps of Abraham. We read, you go to the New Testament, and there the writers of Hebrews tells us in 11, Chapter 11, verse 9 and 10, it says, By faith Abraham went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, 
living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And then later on in the same chapter, you drop down to verse 13, it says, and having acknowledged that they were, were strangers and exiles on the earth. In other words, sojourners in this world. And we, we here, we are called to the same journey. In fact, Peter even alludes to this. He, this is what he references and addresses us as when he writes his two letters, First and Second Peter. He, he calls believers that he's writing to their sojourners or aliens there in First Peter chapter 2, verse 11. John Calvin writes, listen to what he says. We must remember that when God withdrew Abraham from the land of his birth, he wanted him to practice what Scripture teaches about our needing to be straight strangers in this world. It is true that not everyone will be expressly commanded to leave the land of his birth, but we must always have our bags packed, so to speak, and be ready to go at God's command. And so we are a a pilgrim people, if we can say it that way. We are called to live as sojourners in the world with our, our bags packed, ready to go where the Lord calls us. And this pilgrim life, listen, it begins with obedience. And it always includes separation. Notice this life of faith of ours as well as for Abraham. Obedience is the response of faith when God calls us out of the world. We see this obedience in the first part of verse 4. It says, so Abram went as the Lord had told him. Now, those first words there, so Abram went, it actually mirrors the language of God's call to Abraham in verse 1, to go. God commanded Abraham to go, and so Abraham spends the rest of this passage doing what? Going. And to emphasize Abraham's obedience here, the Bible adds that phrase at the end there, as the Lord had told him. And so Abraham is is obeying the Lord as God told him to do. He is going. He went, A.W. Tozer writes. The Bible recognizes no faith that does not lead to obedience nor does it recognize any obedience that does not spring forth from faith. The two are at opposite sides of the same coin. And notice, Abraham, he obeyed without comprehending, without understanding everything that God was telling him to do. Listen, Abraham Abraham did not comprehend how God was going to make him a great nation. Did Abraham comprehend that promise when his wife was still barren and he had no son? He had no seed? No, he did not comprehend that completely. He did not know anything about the land that God had told him to go to. God did not give him a detailed roadmap to the land. And yet, what do we see Abraham doing? He is going. In fact, he went, and in the words of Hebrews 11.8, he went not knowing where he was going. 
He just knew that God commanded him to go, and he obeyed. God commanded him, and he went as the Lord had told him. And notice here how all-consuming, how all-embracing Abraham's response of faith was. You see this in verse 4. Look at it with me. It says, so Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, in all their possessions that they had gathered in the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. So it's all embracing. What action did this declare on Abraham's part? When you read verse 4 and 5, what do you see Abraham doing? Listen, it declares that Abraham is not going back. There is no turning back. It's as if he burned his ships and there is no way to go back. Nothing was put in storage, in other words, in Haran. Whatever possessions that they could load up, they took. And whoever believed in the God of promise was welcome to come along. And yes, we will see later on that Lot would become the source of contention for Abraham, and Abraham would have to eventually rescue him, but he was also described as righteous by Peter. And in this phrase, the people that Abraham had acquired in Haran, listen, don't think of those people as slaves. Abraham, yes, he had servants, but these were not slaves. More than likely, these were people that Abraham had already begun to witness to about the God of promise. He was already sharing his faith about the God who called him in Haran and gathering people around him, and they were welcome to come with him as his part of his entourage. And so Abraham went in obedience, and as the Lord had told him, this act of faith included separation. Notice this in your notes. Separation is always the result of faith when God calls us to leave the world. The second part of verse 4, if you look at it with me again, says... Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. This departure from Haran means a separation from Abraham's old life. In order for him to experience the blessings of the new life that God was calling him to. At the same time, this, this call of separation does not mean that Abraham is to take himself completely out of the world and have no association with anyone else in the world. And we know that because of the second part of God's blessing to Abraham. He was what? To be a blessing. He was to be a blessing to the world. And through him, the whole world was to get in on this blessing of his seed of redemption, of salvation, that was all part of God's plan. And so in order, though, for Abraham to be a blessing to the world, Abraham first had to separate himself from the world in his old way of life. And so God commanded Abraham to leave his country, to leave his family, and to leave his father's household and go to a land that God would show him. 
John Walton writes, and he's a, he's a commentator, an author who's written a commentary, commentary on Genesis. He writes, Abraham must decide whether to abandon his land in favor of the land that God offers. He must decide whether to abandon what family he still has in favor of the family that God promises him. He must decide whether to set aside his blessing, his inheritance, for the inheritance and blessing that God describes. In other words, God is calling Abraham to leave every worldly attachment behind in order to follow a new God into a new land to gain a new family so he will be a blessing to the world. But in order to bless the world, Abraham must first do what? He must first die to that world, relinquishing his ties to what the world offers him for the sake of what God promises him. And so make no mistake about this. God's call to Abraham, it was a call of separation. And at the age of 75, Abraham left it all behind when he departed from Haran. Charles Swindoll describes it this way. Having heard from God, Abraham abandoned his lifelong home. He denied his culture. He disconnected from his family. He left his friends. He sacrificed his land. And he threw away any future he may have planned or hoped for. This idea of separation, it seems so radical to us in in our culture and our day here. And part of that is because, in the words of Walter Brueggemann, it, it challenges the dominant ideologies of our time which yearn for for settlement for security and placement in other words what what Brugman is saying is that everything around us tells us to to hunker down to save everything which we see that here in american culture especially with all the storage facilities we have and to hedge ourselves in other words put a hedge around us to to protect ourselves with every comfort and every protection. But God's word actually challenges us with a different mindset. In Colossians chapter 3, 1 through 4, listen to what Paul says. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above not on things that are on earth. Why? And Paul gives us the reason why. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. That's what Abraham was banking on. That's what he was trusting in. That's why he was willing to leave everything behind and separate himself in obedience to God. Following God, mark it down, it means separation. It means leaving your old way of life so that you can begin to live a new way of life following God. Ray Steadman, who's a pastor and author, put it this way. The decision we must make is simple to understand, but often hard to implement. It means letting go. 
You cannot have one foot in the world and one foot in heaven. You cannot stay in Ur and move to the land of promise at the same time. To choose one, you must forsake the other. There is no middle course. And so now we see Abraham's journey here. Abraham sets out to the land of Canaan. He does so as a sojourner, and he does this. He goes, and he sets out as a sojourner despite the obstacles and the opposition. It says at the end of verse 5, they set out to go to the land of Canaan, and Abraham did this despite the obstacles and the opposition. And just think about the obstacle of moving some 400 miles. Listen, if moving today in our culture with a U-Haul is a hassle, and it is, just think how much harder it was for Abraham to load up the camels and wagons and to move in his day. 400 miles south. And then notice the opposition that Abraham immediately faces in the land in verse 6. It says, Abraham passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the Oak of Moreh. And don't miss what Moses says next. The author of Genesis, Moses says, at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Now, that is meant to be jarring for us as readers of this text. We are meant to be jarred by that sentence there, that statement, that the Canaanites are in the land. Because I'm sure it was very, very jarring for Abraham to all of a sudden discover that this land that God had just promised to give to his descendants is now occupied. And it's occupied by none other than the Canaanites. You say, well, who are those? Who are the Canaanites? That's a great question. Well, the Canaanites were the descendants of Ham. If you remember, you go back to Genesis chapter 6 through 9 there, and Ham is one of Noah's sons. In fact, the Canaanites then would become the sworn enemies of Israel through the rest of the Old Testament. In fact, it was Ham's son Canaan who was cursed by Noah in Genesis 9. In fact, the abhorrent practices of, of Canaan's father, Ham, seem to have been passed down from generation to generation, resulting in this morally wicked people that the Canaanites became. The Canaanites were also, they were pagan idolaters, just like Abraham was. In fact, it's likely that this, this phrase, this okamore, that Moses alludes to here in Genesis 12, this okamore, it served as a kind of a, a Canaanite shrine where idolatry was practiced and, and oracles were given to the people. In fact, this word more, it is actually translated or means teacher. And so the idea here, what, what we are learning here with this phrase, Okamore, is that this was the place, this was a place where, where the Canaanite people would gather together to hear false teaching and practice false worship. And so when Abraham arrives in Canaan, the first people he encounters are these people, the Canaanites, pagan idol worshipers who oppose, who are hostile to the one true living God. And the presence of these Canaanites indicates for us the reality of opposition as Abraham 
followed the Lord. It's a reminder for us even today that living by faith as a sojourner in this world, it is not easy. It is never easy. It was not easy for Abraham, and it is not easy for you and I as well, which is why it is so necessary that we don't just live as sojourners, but we also live as worshipers who are dependent upon God. Which brings us to point number two. The life of faith is lived as a worshiper before the Lord. Upon entering the land of Canaan, it's interesting what Abraham does. He actually travels across all the land. He travels from the north all the way to the south of it. In fact, you see that in your map, in your notes. I know it's small. The writing's really small. So... About half of you can read it, half of you can't. But as Abraham is traveling from north to south through the land of Canaan, he's doing two things. He is pitching his tent, and he's building altars, and he's also calling on the name of the Lord. Look at it with me once again in verses 6 through 9. Beginning in verse 6, it says, Abraham passed through the land to the first place at Shechem, to the Oak of Moray. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. And so what does Abraham do? He built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And then from there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And then from there, he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abraham journeyed on, still going toward the Negev, which is at the very southern part of the land of Canaan. So three places are mentioned here in our text today. You have Shechem, which is right smack dab in the middle of Canaan. You have the hill country between Bethel and Ai. And I wish I had time to get into those two places because they're prominent places in, in, in the Old Testament history. And then you have the Negev, which is the a desert area. In Abraham, it's interesting, he builds an altar in two of those three places in response to God's appearance to him and God's promise to him. And so what we see here in particular in these verses is that worship is now the sojourner's response to the God of promise. And in fact, our worship is even motivated By believing in the God of promise. Notice this. The life of worship by Abraham. God's appearance to Abraham is actually a confirmation of his faith. Abraham, go back and just think, think through this with me a little bit. Abraham's just discovered that the Canaanites were in the land. And so how reassuring it must have been to immediately see God in a vision. And this is the first time God reveals himself to Abraham in a vision. And not only to see God in a vision, but to hear again, God reaffirm the promise. In fact, specifically the promise that this land will be given to his offspring. In fact, this vision, if you're wondering, is called a theophany. And it assures, it reassures, it comforts Abraham. It's almost as if God is saying to Abraham, yes, I know it appears that this land belongs to the Canaanites. 
Yes, it seems they have a stronghold on the land, but it will not last forever, Abraham. Listen, I have other plans for this land. It is to your offspring I will give this land. So trust me. Follow me. And this is, this is just beautiful what God is doing here for his servant Abraham. Again, think about it. Abraham has just traveled 400 miles to the land of Canaan. And the very first people he encounters are the Canaanites. Do you think just for a moment that Abraham might have become a little discouraged by that? Sure. Listen, Abraham's human like us. Discouragement would begin to set in our hearts if that's the first people we encounter. But that's immediately when God shows up again in his life and explicitly promises Abraham, to your offspring I will give this land, Abraham. So don't doubt me. Don't doubt the promises here. And yes, that promise, it may seem on the surface impossible at the time. Why? Because Abraham has no seed and the land is occupied. And yet this promise gave Abraham the strength that he needed to continue on his journey of faith. Listen, God was providing Abraham assurance of his blessing and confirmation of his own faith in the midst of doubt and danger around him. In response, in response, what does Abraham do? This is amazing. This is beautiful. He builds an altar. He builds an altar in worship of this God of promise. And so notice this. Second of all, Abraham's altar before God, it's his confession of his faith. So God appears and gives him a promise as a a confirmation of his faith. And now in response, Abraham builds an altar in response as a confession of his faith. Abraham probably used stones that he gathered from the site to build his altar. And it's reasonable, reasonable to assume that Abraham just didn't build an altar for an altar's sake, but he also offered an animal sacrifice on the altar, even though the text does not tell us that. After all, that's what altars are for. You see that all through the Old Testament. And so it seems that Abraham already began to have an understanding of this new kind of worship that he was called to. Worship that required now in the Old Testament a atonement for sin, atonement through a a blood sacrifice of an animal that would now grant Abraham access to a holy God. And of course, all of this, this, these sacrifices, these altars of worship in the Old Testament, they're all pointing us forward to the New Testament. All of it is a foreshadowing of the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ that he offered on the cross that gives every one of us here access to God. Hallelujah, right? Praise God for that. And so this altar that Abraham built, it it was a confession of his faith in God. It was his way uh, of acknowledging 
to the Lord. Lord, I trust you. I believe in your promise, Lord. Lord, I also need you. Help me in this journey of faith so that I might walk in this land with confidence and receive your blessings of your promise. And remember, God had said to Abraham that he would give this land to his descendants. And now Abraham is doing what? He is demonstrating in a visible, tangible way his faith in God. By building an altar at the very place where God had just reaffirmed his promise to him. And just think how Abraham's worship. Think about this, dads. Moms, think about this. Think about how Abraham's worship at this moment influenced and impacted his family and entourage. Abraham's altar here was just not a confession of his faith to God. It was a confession of his faith to all the people around him. Sarah and Lot and his servants, they saw with their own eyes this altar. They saw in a visible act of worship the faith that was residing and growing in Abraham's heart and now being fleshed out. And just think about this. They watched as Abraham built his altar. Sarah watched her husband as he offered a sacrifice to the one true living God. They knew, his family knew, his servants knew, the people that came with him knew that here is a man who lived by faith. Not perfectly, as we will immediately see in this chapter next week. But here's a man that is obeying, he has separated himself, and now he is demonstrating this all through it. And it's visible. So let me, let me just ask us here, especially dads and you moms, what are you doing? What are you doing at this moment to demonstrate your faith to your family and even to your friends? Can you, can you point to anything? Anything in your life. Is there anything to point to in your life that would be evidence of your faith in God? Have you built, in other words, built any altars? I'm not, I'm not talking about literal altars. But, but spiritually speaking, have you built any altars to the Lord who has called you to follow him? Alexander McLaren, British pastor and author, said, it cost Abraham much more to build his altar than it did to pitch his tent. And so how have you demonstrated to your family and to your friends by, by some costly act of worship that you are indeed a person of faith in this God of promise of ours? And it is interesting to note that the, the place of Abraham's very first altar was in Shechem. And in the Old Testament, Shechem is always, always, always a place of decision-making. 
It's where Moses, later down the road here, he will speak to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 11. And Moses will call on the children of Israel to make a decision to follow the Lord before they enter the promised land. Once they they are on the outskirts of the promised land, it's where Joshua will give his last charge to the children of Israel before they cross over into the, the Jordan River. And in Jordan, Joshua 24 There Joshua urges the children of Israel to serve the Lord. Make a decision about this. And then he declares that famous verse in verse 15. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And isn't it interesting? Before Joshua crosses over, they also made altars there. Altars of remembrance. Again, parents, grandparents, what altars are you building as a visible testimony of your own faith to your wife, to your spouse, and more importantly, to your kids in the world around you as we see? As Abraham continues on his journey in the land, He also builds now another altar, a second altar. And this time, in addition to the sacrifice, he now calls on the name of the Lord. Look what it says in verses 8 and 9. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent. With Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abraham. He is doing what the godly line had always done in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And you go back to Genesis 4, and people offered sacrifice to the Lord as early as the days of Cain and Abel. And the men at the end of Genesis 4 began to call on the name of the Lord in the time of Seth's son Enosh. And Abraham's now doing the same thing. He is worshiping God. He's calling on the name of God as a witness to the Canaanites around him. In fact, this phrase, calling on the name of the Lord, it actually it refers to, to public worship of praying to God and proclaiming the name of God. It speaks of prayer and praise throughout the Old Testament. But here in this context, in Genesis 12, the emphasis seems to be on proclaiming God's name. In fact, Martin Luther actually translated this word proclaim as preaching. And so most likely then, here's what Abraham's doing. He's proclaiming, he's even preaching the name of God to the watching world. And remember, the name in the Bible always refers to the nature and the character of somebody. So Abraham, he is preaching about the works and the character of God, how mighty this God is of ours. Let me tell you, as these Canaanites watched and heard, No one was wondering, who is this wanderer? And who's he praising and proclaiming? There was no doubt. They knew he was proclaiming and praising the one true living God. They didn't wonder about it. At his altar, Abraham worships God. And he does so openly, publicly. 
He does so unabashedly as a witness to the Canaanites around him. That's something to think about, something to consider. If we were to go to some of your family, if we were to go to some of your friends and coworkers and ask them, who, who does this individual, who does he proclaim as his God? What, what faith does he claim to believe in? What, what would they say? Would, would, would your friends and co would they, would they wonder who you worship? Would they wonder about your faith? Or do they know because you have, in a sense, worshipped and witnessed to them? Alan Ross writes it this way. The Lord promised to make Abraham's name great, to make him famous, and Abraham responded by proclaiming the name of the Lord, making the Lord famous in Canaan. And so what we see here in the passage is this paradox of Abraham's life that is an example for us today. pitching his tents, he's building his altars, and he's building his altars in worship and as a witness. And listen, this idea of witness, I, I totally understand and get it. This is not the easiest thing in the world to do. And it has to be intentional. It has to be at the forefront of your mind, or you will just blend in. When Abraham worshiped, listen, he didn't cave to the culture. He didn't try to blend in with, the, with, with their religion. He was up front and out front with it. This is who I believe, the God of promise. I, I, I know I struggle with that sometimes. Uh, Rick Powers and I, we play baseball together along with, with Pat Dunn. And the three of us, we, we have tried to do just this with the guys on our baseball team. And it's not always the easiest thing in the world. Most of those guys through my years, and I play with a group of guys basketball who I've now played with for 10 years, and none of them attend our church here. I've invited them several times, but they all know I'm a pastor. They know I'm a Christian. And I've had opportunities through the years to pray with these guys. In fact, one, one guy's dad just, he had a massive stroke. He was at North Kansas City Hospital, and... Uh, Went to go see him at the hospital. He is a devout Catholic. I mean, a devout Catholic. But I went in there. His wife was there. And uh, he immediately knew who I was. And he was so thankful to see me. And I, just, I asked, hey, can I just pray with you? And in the prayer, I'm praying the gospel. I have literally had, have prayed with guys in the dugout. And I'm not, I don't say this to, to hold myself. I, listen, I do not do this perfectly of worshiping and witnessing about my faith and my belief in God. I struggle with this too. But folks, are we making any kind of effort like Abraham here? Abraham's life is now a paradox of, of permanence and pilgrimage as he follows the Lord by faith. 
In verse 8, this phrase, he pitched his tent, it is set in contrast beside the phrase, built an altar. And as we've seen, Abraham is a man, he's a man without a permanent settled home. And there is a clear contrast here between the permanent altars that Abraham built and the temporary tents that Abraham pitched. In fact, Victor Hamilton writes, he says it this way, the tents are dismantled, but the altars are left standing. You realize Abraham, you read, the, read, read his story. It's Genesis 12 through Genesis 25. He never built a house. I'm not saying that's wrong for us to live in a house, build a house today. Don't, don't hear me take that. It, it's the idea. It's the mindset. It's the attitude. He never built a house, but he always pitched his tent, and then he packed it up again to move on, but he built altars to the Lord in worship. Abraham, he left this world without ever having a permanent home, but he left this world with altars everywhere to his God and as a witness to the world. And so Abraham's life is a paradox of of permanence and pilgrimage as he follows the Lord by faith. It's a good picture of the life of faith for us today. No, we are not called to some nomadic lifestyle. I'm not saying that. But we are called to live as sojourners in this world. And that means, listen to me, that we are to hold the things of this life loosely. We pitch our tents and we're willing to let things go because we recognize that this world is not my home. I'm just passing through it. And so like Abraham, we recognize that we are looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. And so understand this principle. If we here this morning, if we are going to live a life of faith, there will always be a tent metaphor in our lives and an altar in our lives. And so like Abraham, our lives too, it will be a paradox of permanence in pilgrimage as we follow the Lord by faith. Calvin applies this example, and he says it this way. We must also imitate our father Abraham and be pilgrims here below. Not that we must trudge through different regions, but we must be ready and not be attached to the earth, but rather be citizens of heaven, even though we must live a while here below. And so here's what I say to you. Pitch your tent as a sojourner in this world and build your altars as a worshiper before our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us here in Genesis. Thank you for being the God of promise. May you give us the hearts of a sojourner and worshiper and the faith to follow you and worship you in this world. And may our affections not be attached to this world, but instead may we continue to look heavenward. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.